Welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and today we have a very special guest. Uh, Nilifer Merchant has written a fantastic book called The Power of Onlyness, and um, I'm going to let her kind of talk about, you know, what it's about, and as we get more into it, we'll kind of get more into how cognitive bias figures into uh, it. It does in a lot of really interesting ways, I find, but uh, first let me introduce uh, Nilifer. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the book and a little bit about what inspired you to write it. Yeah, so uh, nothing matters more than innovation. That's something new that creates value. And yet there's a whole bunch of different ways in which society is completely not set up to let us have new ideas emerge. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this idea of onlyness, uh, which you just you know introduced the word, It's not a word in the English dictionary, but I'm basically arguing that it should be Mm -hmm. because at its simplest, it means that anyone's, quite possibly everyone's ideas matter, not based on that spot that their position is in or their title is or whatever, but based on that spot in the world, only one stands. And through the connectedness offered by distributed networks, new ideas can emerge and connect and scale to make that difference. So that's why I coined the word and really care about it. And what kind of inspired you um, to take on this topic? Yeah. So a while ago, I was talking about this idea to a colleague of mine, and uh, we were sitting in some French cafe, I remember, and uh, I was telling him, you know, we've got to figure out how to get more people through the castle or into the castle on the hill, because right now, really, a very small group of people, mostly white, mostly male, mostly Mm -hmm. older, mostly highly educated people, get to have ideas. And it's, it's ruling a whole bunch of people out. And actually, this friend of mine uh, was, you know, and I said, basically, it's this power and status of the person ends up screening out rather than funneling in, right? And this friend shook his head and he said, actually, that's not what you care about at all. You're not trying to get people to go into the castle because the castle is old and drafty and only works for those who established it. And he said, actually, what you're trying to do is something better, which is to build a new way that we can all work. And that's what you're actually trying to create. And I, and I, it was funny because at the time, I remember so shaking him off like, no, 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 I just want to get more people into the castle. <laughs> <laughs> and, but as time has gone on, I realized he was actually really pointing that I'm not trying to fix the old system. I'm actually trying to build a brand new system. Yeah, and, and what you're talking about reminds me of something I, you know, I kind of grew up thinking a lot about, which is, you know, I, I, I've always wanted to be and am, you know, a filmmaker, but I was yeah. always, you know, torn between this notion of I need to go to Hollywood, right, and become a, a filmmaker in Hollywood and enter that system, right, that castle. But I grew up during the time when indie film was on the rise, and you didn't have to live mm-hmm. in L.A. to be a filmmaker, and that became more and more true as the Internet came up. And so I... Um, that, that has a lot of resonance for me, this notion of that, you know, that choice or that spectrum between I'm going to find the thing in myself and build, build my thing here versus I'm going to try to enter some power structure that already exists. Yeah. Because, yeah. um, I mean, I think that's the thing, right, with a lot of – if I study the last 50 years of uh, time period and you study that we had a lot of firsts or only show up in Hollywood or you showed up, you know, as – best director or whatever, or, or they showed up in business as, you know, first CEO who's X, mm-hmm. those actually didn't change the system. Yeah. And, and the numbers haven't largely changed. And so I'm fairly 
uh, clear, having done the research now, social science work around it, is that if we are in a small enough number, we get to co get co-opted by the system rather than yeah. actually change the system. And so how do we actually design a new way of working that actually allows us to actually, you know, re-architecture the entire thing from the scratch? Yeah, and, and that, that kind of brings us to our first uh, bias. Uh, there's something called moral licensing uh, that actually shows up a lot when you have the first, you know, female uh, prime minister of Australia or the first, you know, black CEO of this company uh, or the first, first black president of America, actually, is that people then suddenly feel, well, I've proven that I'm not sexist or I'm not racist, so now I can kind of behave any way I want. And right. so there was a lot of really racist rhetoric that came out after Obama was president. Or um, you have a lot of uh, female first leaders of countries who, after they serve their term, it takes a long time before you have another woman in power there because of this moral license bias that kind of enters in. Well, and that was one of the, the points I made. One of the first stories I, sh I told in the book was a story of Kimberly Bryant, mm. who is the now founder of an organization called Black Girls Code. And she, when she, so I'll back up and share her story and then what I think the lesson yeah. of her story is. So Kimberly basically uh, graduates from Vanderbilt University, uh, has a bunch of jobs in tech. One of the first jobs, or I want to actually say it was the second major job she had, she's so ridiculously excited to meet her new team because she's like, now I'm an engineer and I've got some experience underneath my belt. And she's finally thinking she's going to get a chance to, you know, be with the team of people who sees her as this fellow engineer. And her boss's first words as the introduction's happening is, with Kimberly Bryant entering this team, we get a twofer. Mm. And, um, and he, what he was pointing out was that it was a black woman in tech. Right. And at that very moment, right, what had he just done? He had focused on her otherness, not her onlyness. Uh, and in doing so, he had basically guaranteed that this person would be uh, failing because um, when you basically point someone's difference out, there is no reason for the rest of the team to see what you have in common and to understand what you have in relationship to one another. It is the wrong construct, you know, the wrong footing. And, um, and so when Kimberly's then, you know, scooch forward in the story like a, a generation, and now her daughter is going to summer coding camp at, in fact, Stanford University, which is really close to where I'm sitting right now. And, uh, uh, Kimberly's uh, daughter Kai ends up coming home and saying, you know, they basically treated me as if I was a novice when she was by far one of the more talented kids in the class. And Kim had noticed that it was a mostly white, mostly male environment. So she, gosh, she, you know, an entire generation has gone on where Kimberly's been the first and the only in a lot of rooms, and yet really nothing's changed. Mm. And so first she starts thinking, you know, maybe I should fund four other girls to go with Kim to go you know, to the next coding class so she feels less alone. And then she's like, actually, that won't change anything. And she has this epiphany that um, so, it's something brand new has to happen. Like there has to be a new approach to this old problem. And she ends up not really saying she's going to become the solution to it, but I'm going to I'm going to participate in this way. And she starts designing um, curriculum on the back of pieces of paper. She borrows some really old uh, computer and around her kitchen table, she starts gathering girls that are from like age nine to about age 12 to learn to code because she figured her enthusiasm and their peer to peer support mm -hmm. would be the right thing. 
And slowly but surely, here's what happens. Mothers from other parents kind of come tap her on the shoulder and saying, can I borrow that curriculum? Can you teach me how to do this? Yeah. Others, other moms from other cities do the same thing. And, and literally the community pulled this idea into the future. And it created, uh, and by the way, uh, I should slow down and mention that Kimberly's already trained 10,000 girls to code. Wow. And yeah, one of the most profound moments she shared with me was when she got to naming the program. She's now about two years in. She's trained a couple hundred kids around her kitchen table. And she's thinking, oh, this is a bigger thing. Maybe I should get, you know, maybe I should make it a program. Maybe I should do it full time. And she's trying to think about how to name it. And um, she's explaining this dilemma to a friend of hers who happens to be, I, I want to say Filipino, Annalisa. And uh, Annalisa says, well, if you're training black girls to code, why wouldn't you call it that? Mm-hmm. And in that moment, though, Kim has to overcome how society, um, you know, has a bias around the word black, right? They've already formulated a, a entire set of meaning around the word black that is not positive. But for Kim, it has a great deal of meaning and is and is positive. And so she has to reclaim for herself that black is good and strong and capable and all those things and, and imbue that into this organization, um, and so there's this real, what I loved about her story was not only just how incredibly courageous and, and uh, lovely it is for her you know, to do the work she's doing, which is important work, but the way she's doing it is to not just do it one-off, not to promote exceptionalism, not to deny someone's heritage, but to actually go straight into the vortex of, mm-hmm. we're going to go together, we're going to go as we are. And we're going to change the world in this sort of group way, right? Celebrating the first person plural, not the first person singular. And that's yeah. how we're going to affect change. Yeah. And, and, and what I like about that, it kind of highlights something. Um, Cory Booker sometimes talks about the difference between tolerance and love. That yeah. tolerance basically says, look, if you disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow, I, I, would, I couldn't care less. But I will let you live here for now, right? I'm not going to get in your way. Whereas love is like, no, you're essential. Like there's something you're bringing to the table that needs to be here and we're going to celebrate that versus try to, you know, marginalize it and just sort of shrug our shoulders and say, okay, I guess I won't fight you, you know? Yeah. When I first coined the term, I was in conversation with my editor over at Harvard. So this really has a business construct, right? I'm trying to figure Mm -hmm. out how to change the world of economics through a different frame. All the, talk about cognitive frame. So the, like how work has worked for 150 years, mm-hmm. it's based on this really weird model called Taylorism. And Taylorism came about when we were first like designing the first like Ford car, and people's ability to create value is tied to how productive they were. So could you install 1,200 bolts, 100 bolts? You know, like the difference between that was what made a good worker. Mm-hmm. And there were very few people actually inventing things, but most people were in the production world. And so the, the management system that was set in place was to break apart really big, complex tasks into something an uneducated person could do and, um, and then measure and manage the productivity of that line. And so there's this weird legacy we have left over from those days where we actually do this thing where we isolate things down to their small little tasks. We basically devoid any humanity or creativity in the system. And then we basically only value that thing which already fits our prescribed notion. Yeah. Right. And so I love Corey's construct because I'm flipping the whole thing and saying, listen, actually everyone is able, able to create value. The problem isn't them. The problem is us. We have not built in management and our models, the scaffolding and systems that taps into the capacity of all these people. 
Yeah, and a lot of the the biases that I talk about uh, on this show really boil down to shortcuts that we take to make it easier to think about things. So there's one called the framing effect, which uh, I describe as the most dangerous cognitive bias I've ever encountered uh, for two reasons. One is because it does sort of, you know, let you phrase things in a way where um, you will make an idiotic decision <laughs> uh, just yes. because I've, I've described it in a certain way. Um, so the, the, the classic is, would you rather have something that's, you know, uh, 95% uh, lean or 5% fat? Like, it's the same decision, but depending on how I frame it, you might say yes or no. Um, right, which is innocuous. Exactly. Yeah, it's innocuous enough when I'm talking about meat, but the same things apply to, like, decisions of whether or not to go to war, Right. But the, the, when you talk about jobs, like one of the things that immediately comes to mind is this notion of the framing effect when it comes to the patterns we're used to seeing in, let's say, who we think a web developer should look like, right? Mm -hmm. All that is is pattern recognition, right? And so if I see someone and they don't look like, right, what I think that person should be for that task, I'm just going to dismiss them. Like I love when you talk about um, Susan Halitsky and, and, and Folded and how people kind of underestimated what she could possibly contribute just because that, that wasn't the frame they had in mind. Can you tell a, a little bit about that story? Yeah, it was, okay, so Susan Halitsky is a, is a uh, person who ends up becoming the best protein folder in the world. Mm. Protein folding being this obscure um, part of science. If a protein folds badly, it basically creates things like Alzheimer's. Mm. If it, and, but if you don't understand how proteins fold, you actually can't solve for major problems that we're having in the medical field. And, uh, and every single piece of research that was being done for the last 45 years was being done with the teams having to reinvent the basics of protein folding. And so this team out of UW says, this is ridiculous. Like, why are we reinventing the wheel? We should have sort of a periodic table of elements for this thing of protein folding so that people can then build on this basis because we're you know, losing a lot of time here. And they decide they're going to produce a crowdsourcing game. And their first hypothesis is, well, we just have to get more PhD people from around the world tapped into this. And it turns out all the PhD talent in the world is largely trained exactly the same way. They mm. have the same cognitive biases, the same protocols in place, and so they are not able to solve it. So then the team sitting there staring at this problem going, okay, well, we have to go to a broader group, which means we have to degunk our jargon out of the system so that we can actually enable citizen science. So they do that, and there's still no resolution. And because what, and then they're watching the games get played and they're realizing everyone is crowding around the people who have the degrees mm. that they expect to have and are male. So that it's like predominantly geared towards like if you saw like a guy at Stanford sort of profile versus a girl who's a nurse, everyone was crowded around the guy from, you know, PhD at Stanford or whatever. And they thought this is ridiculous. So they actually just hid the, um, the social signals around status and they just hmm. turned them down so that it didn't, you know, completely eliminate them. They just turned them down so it wasn't the first thing you noticed because then people could actually notice who was actually doing a good job. And then the third piece they came up with, which I thought was really important for modern life, is they started rewarding people helping one another hmm. um, so that it wasn't just everyone isolating their own little thing trying to win by themselves, but realizing all our complex problems are group problems, right? So did all that, and then it slowly but surely... Um, not only did they completely solve this thing, which was unsolvable by scientific algorithms, unsolvable by PhDs. So think about how complex this is. And then the person who turns out to be the best protein folder in this world is Suzanne. Suzanne, it turns out, is an admin during the day. 
and answers phones and happens to be like a Sudoku. My husband's a big Sudoku player, mm. uh, puzzle player in the evenings, like just loves puzzles and had gotten a nursing degree, had actually worked in the field of medicine, but left because of sexism. And so is now this capacity, right? Capacity sitting right there, but untapped until Folded actually figured out the ways to um, unlock that capacity. So I thought it was a really imp impl important like decision tree that they went through, mm -hmm. right? Because you think about all the questions they had to get through, the cognitive biases they had to get through. The first one of, um, it has to be an educated person. Right. And the second one of, um, it's going to be the most credentialed person. And the third one of, um, that it's going to be the best in terms of some technical advance versus a group effort, right? They had to go through these moments of, wow, that's not what we thought it was going to be, to what else could we do? Well, well, not only that, they then, as they made those adjustment, adjustments, had to design the system to also combat those biases, right? And say, turn down, like the, the signals that make, make you think, oh, the first thing I know about this person is that they are a doctor or that there's some kind of signal that they have some kind of status. I need to make it so that the first thing you notice is how good they're doing. Or I need to right. reward, you know, this behavior that when I think about a competition or a game, I'm not necessarily thinking I would naturally reward. So there's a lot of counterintuitive choices that you have to make with design to avoid some of these biases. And what I loved about it, and it was a, it was a young man, Adrian Trail, who's, who's telling me this story, and, and it took about two, two and a half years of this observation, turning around, trying new things, any one of which you could have looked at and said, we're failing, we're failing, we're failing, so we should just give up, right? And instead, they were like, okay, we just haven't figured it out yet. Mm -hmm. And what is it we could be asking differently? What is it we could be doing that we haven't tried? And they got to this other outcome. And I, I just wonder so much if we could do that more in business, what's the kind, of, or, or in any capacity, I'm not, I'm not you know, I, I come at this lens of business. One of the funnest things about this, uh, actually, this project of writing this last book is I said, I would step outside my business domain mm -hmm. and really try to study every sector and, and just you know, see what I saw. And it opened up my aperture to realize the same problems exist across every industry and every segment. Yeah. So that was kind yeah. of interesting. And then to realize the same solutions, there, there are creative solutions to be found in each of our spaces. So that was really a very, very big joy of me kind of uh, looking anew at the world too. So you kind of had your own bias to overcome there, right? Of like, you know, the, 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 the most available like question you were used to asking. Yeah, and it caused me to really, uh, in fact, there was one story which was education-related uh, where I literally, every single time I, I did an interview around that call, I would hang up the phone and sit and stare, like stare at the wall kind of thing and be like, what the hell did I just learn? Um, because it took a little while to like, just almost process it, almost like mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're used to seeing one pattern and you're seeing a different pattern, you're like, okay, well, how do I recognize what I'm actually even observing here, yeah. and so, and sometimes it meant I came back to the you know circle the circle the circle the block as I sometimes say right like I I'm like I kind of see that I could park there but I'm not so sure and I would go <laughs> the building again. yeah yeah and and it's I like what you said about asking different questions because one of the like fundamental biases is, that everyone kind of knows colloquially is the, is the confirmation bias and mm. it's 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 there for a reason because. At the end of the day, confirmation bias is very much about we ask the same questions all the time. And the way to get around it is usually 
to ask a different question. And literally, the scientific method was invented <laughs> to avoid the confirmation bias by asking the opposite question, not, hey, I've got a theory, I think this might be true, am I right? It's more, hey, okay, you think you're right, now try to prove yourself wrong. What question would you ask if you weren't right? And that's not something we're used to doing. Um, no, and I feel like even with onlyness, I feel like I haven't yet asked that question to be completely honest because mm-hmm. um, I'm so sure that Taylorism is the modern way, you know, I mean, the current way of doing things. I'm so clear we need a new way. Yeah. And the and so I'm sort of pointing to the fact that each of us could have value. So what is that spot in the world only you stand in, right? So, it's, mm-hmm. it, so I kind of went that direction. But I, if I flip, like I still haven't figured out Okay, if it's not onlyness, like if it's not the direction I'm sort of you right. know, charting out, what are the alternative um, frameworks that could be used? And I, I can't spot them, and, and I, I also can't find anybody else who's challenging the framework that hard. Most people mm-hmm. are, uh, uh, and that's what I'm looking for this year, which is why I'm being so intentional about saying it out loud. I'm not clear that I'm right as yeah. much as I'm clear I'm directionally correct, right? <laughs> like that part's well, like, yeah, and that's... Uh, yeah. I think that's that's great. First off, like I think, because that's something it's it's hard to find the. I think that's a brave thing to do. It's hard to find the courage to take something that you believe in and that you've devoted a lot of time to, and then with intention say, okay, now I need to see if I'm wrong, right? <laughs> you know, that's that's a very difficult yeah. choice to make, especially when it's something that is like newborn to the world, like and and you're still it's still figuring out what it is. But I think it's an yeah. important. That's an important time to ask that question. Because it, it can save you a lot of time, you know, in the long run, right? If you, the sp- spot that you've missed, you know, this one little piece, it's like, oh, okay, we've saved ourselves a year of realizing we need to backtrack from that because we didn't quite have that figured out. Right. And so it's like, almost like, okay, where are my blind spots? What am I not mm-hmm. asking that I, or answering, you know, what am I not mm. exploring enough? Who else should challenge this thesis? Who else has got a parallel thesis we could explore? So there's this process of investigation because it isn't as yet a complete um, idea Mm -hmm. and I'm not even sure it's a complete right frame but I'm so sure that this is the tugging direction right that I Mm -hmm. think that 7.5 billion of us have value to add capacity to have value and then I read things like the economist actually said was it September that, that we've run out of ideas. That was actually the article and the mm-hmm. underlying research. We've run out of ideas. And basically at this point, America especially, um, the reason we're not going to grow is because we've run out of ideas. And I actually kind of start laughing when I read that because I'm like, actually, it's not that we've run out of ideas. It's that the existing systems obscure or deny ideas that mm. come from the people who lack organizational heft or or don't fit into a particular profile. Um, and And our organizations are optimized for productivity and not the incredibly messy moments that birth innovation and new outcomes. Right. So I, so I was just like, okay, but then how do I, how do I come to measure that? You know, or how do we, cause it's, it's going to be more than um, little on me over here thinking, um, start to explore that. And that's, uh, it's really important to know and keep advocating for something you believe is right and hold, right. It's duality um, and hold. Okay. And what else is still needs to, get developed or what else do we still need to learn yeah and I, and I like what you said about like you feel like you're directionally right right like like joey ito likes to talk about compasses not maps that it's yes. this notion of rather than i've got this all figured out here's the business plan let's get going it's more okay i feel like a direction we need to go towards is this 
what steps can we take to get there? And what you're saying about, um, I've been thinking a lot, a lot also about this notion of, yes, I feel like a lot of us have unique things to offer, unique perspectives to offer. And what becomes tricky is figuring out how to like systematize that. It's uh, something my friend mm-hmm. Emily calls um, uh, uh, perspective as a service, right? This notion that um, if you show somebody something and they have no context, right? Like, so the, there's a story of a, uh, of a, uh, a DJ who basically figured out that the Nazis were all on drugs. Um, <laughs> I think I may have talked to you about this before, but it's this, this notion that um, this one writer um, had been studying World War II and um, had read stories about um, Nazis marching for like two days straight, like without stopping. And he casually mentioned this to a friend of his who was a DJ, and the DJ goes, well, f- clearly they were on drugs. And the writer's like, what are you talking about? And the DJ says, well, look, I've done shows where I've had to stay up, right, all night long DJing, like, for, like you know, endless, you know, and um, there was no way they were doing all that sober, right? So they looked into the records because Nazis kept meticulous records, and sure enough, here's the dosages, here's what we were giving them, here's what we were actually giving the German citizens at the time, and the historians had access to all of this, but it never even occurred to them to ask the question because they had a completely different background. Um, there's actually a bias called deformation professionnelle. <laughs> I'm going to butcher the French on that, but it is all about this notion that we get into our, we get so in our own heads about our job that we don't even consider other perspectives. So, in a weird way, the DJ had his own little deformation professionnelle about being yeah. a DJ, but it allowed him when you took him out of that context and put him in this other context where you know, from a hierarchical or Taylorism perspective, he didn't belong, that you were able to get this new result and this new knowledge. So I, I feel like that what that story to me, like what you're talking about with holiness seems to me like the beginning of that conversation is so, okay, how do we totally. identify that in people and then start to, well, frankly, build an economy around it? Right. And so right now what we're doing is we're basically looking for a prescribed set of people, right? So we never, never look for the DJ. Mm-hmm. And I've been wondering if we flip it. So in the case of Fold It, which we just kind of walked through the example, they didn't pre, predefine who would get to play. All they predefined is here's the thing we need to solve. Mm, yeah. Right? And so if you think about it, the strategy, the thing we're using to scale in current business models is leaders and organizations today divide up problems and assign them in, a, in a specific deconstructed yet measurable bits, right? That's yeah. current model because that's how we scale. And then, and then I'm basically arguing using Folded or other things is the problem or the opportunity or whatever you want to call it, right? The way to create value is the thing that's defined and then distributed networks come together to self-organize around that. So it's basically mm. like a magnetic pull using um, John Hagel's concept pull model, which is to say, come to this, you know, come, come around this campfire and come join us. If you think this is a place you want to be and and it's a, a completely different, more purposeful uh, way to start to organize, but it allows people to self, self, first of all, self-organize, which is choice driven, Mm. which is based on your interests. And it's focused on solving problems that we all sort of co-own. Yeah, rather than you know somebody else defining the little tiny little itty bitsy fucking stupid bit that has no meaning to us. Right, and and it's so it reminds me of problems problems based procurement, which is kind of a new trend. Some mm. cities are trying out where instead of saying, 
okay, we need streetlights and they must be this big and use this much wattage and blah, 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 blah. And it goes out to the same five contractors it always goes out to and lowest bid wins. It's much more basic. It says, we need to be able to see at night. Go, right? right? <laughs> yes. And all of a sudden, all these players get to play who didn't get to play before and all these ideas get to get to in, get introduced maybe night vision goggles giving everyone night vision goggles is a better way who knows right but uh, all these other people get to play who otherwise would not be considered isn't that a beautiful way of thinking about it and and in fact one of the little uh, vignettes in the uh, i found on on the internet which i just insisted on including in onlyness but my editor was like this is stupid and we're gonna take it out but it was this um this graphic that had, I want to say it's seven animals lined up. Let's see if I can remember this. It was a walrus, mm-hmm. a bird, a fish in a tank, an elephant, uh, a monkey, a wolf. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember if I got them all. But they're all, so they're all lined up, right? Different sizes. So they're all lined up in front of a guy who has a, you know, sitting behind a table. And he says, for this to be fair, um, all of you have the same test. Go climb that tree. Mm. And, and in the little internet graphic, the monkey is ecstatic and everyone else has this look of puzzlement, <laughs> right? Because the only one who can actually technically climb a tree is right. the monkey. So by default, only one person wins. And I, just for the sake of, you know, sort of pursuing the logic, I said, what if you made it get the thing at the top of the tree? Yeah. Right. Then the bird has a chance to play. The elephant has a chance to play, and the penguin, because I saw South African penguins recently have some pretty badass throwing capacity, which I did not really? realize they had. Yeah, aim. Like, they have aim and velocity down, and I was like, I had no <laughs> idea penguins had that. So all of a sudden you had, so you basically got to 50% capacity usage mm. by changing from process to outcome. Mm. And your example, which you just did with the problems-based procurement, is exactly the same thing, but it went from basically 15% utilization from the animals to 50% using my stupid, uh, you know, my little, what if you just change one thing? Right. But I think we're, I think we're doing this all over the place. Mm. I think we basically look for certain qualifications, certain credentials sorted and selected based on exactly how we've done it before. And instead of this broad capacity, widely dispersed, all are welcome, kind of model because then you're going to break the thing. And so the old system of Taylorism optimizes for productivity against the way we've always done it. But the new frame allows for innovation and creativity because you don't know what you're going to get if you say our goal is to see at night. Yeah. And, and yeah. Um, I, I, th- I think there's an interesting future there. I want, I want to shift gears a little bit because one of the other stories in your book really resonated with me and really, I, I'm so conflicted about it, but it, it, um, but it also speaks to some pretty core biases that I think are very, very difficult to overcome. And it's the, the story of Samar Khan. So I'd like you to tell her story, and then I'd mm-hmm. like to sort of talk to you about some of the, the, the things it brings up for me, especially around cognitive bias. Yeah. Oh, I want to hear, I want to hear your piece. Okay. So Samar Minala Khan is this uh, uh, woman based in Pakistan, raised from a rel- relatively traditional family, uh, with one exception, her father actually let her have the same education as her brothers. So she got to go to Oxford, studying anthropology. She's now done with school. She goes back to Pakistan. And here's somebody uh, describe uh, something very positively, but she's never heard this word. And she's, it's said, the person said something like, with Swara, you get peace. Mm. And she never heard the term Swara before, S-W-A-R-A. 
So she kind of logs that in her head, like, oh, God, you know, again, anthropologist, curious, right? What the hell is that? And she goes and chases it down. It turns out it's the form um, of compensation that happens so that, let's say, my father commits a crime against your family. I, as a young girl, would be given in compensation to your family. Uh, I could be four, six, seven, eight years, it's typically really young, and uh, given, so mm. sent to that house and just like, you know, no longer belongs to her family, belongs to this other family. And uh, that creates quote unquote justice, and all is sort of forgiven within the tribe at that mm. moment. And uh, so Samar, who is a feminist, does not think this creates justice and is horrified that somebody had introduced the term of with Swara, you create peace, right? She's like, that does not create peace for the girl. Like, mm -hmm. I don't understand how you would think of it, right? So she gets, for, for many years, in fact, quite upset and then finally starts to figure out, she learns filmmaking, this is how she becomes a filmmaker. You're going to love that part of the story, mm. right? Um, because she wants to be able to interview the girls and, and the people that she would normally have taken into those settings would be guys who knew how to do filmmaking. So she herself learned how to do filmmaking so she could go in and interview these girls and... Um, and, and get their confidential story, get the mother story, et cetera, on film. And she starts doing this really interesting process where she starts for everybody, from the fathers who have given away their daughters to the mothers who experience that as a member of the family to the girls who are given away. She starts interviewing all these people and starting to figure out how to share their stories in such a way to actually affect change. But of course, the people who are the people who have can actually ha basically have to change in order for the change to take place are the most traditional um, tribal leaders, uh, you know, um, and who are who are not, by the way, feminists who right. have completely designed the system. And if, if there is no better word to describe it other than patriarchy, right? Like this is mm -hmm. a patriarchal system that views the value of girls as nothing, and. Uh, she actually figures out how to get invited into their context to show these films and then to back away without telling them what to do, mm. but basically offering them ideas of what are other options through other people, not her saying, oh, these are other options, but here's what the best research says about this tradition in the past. Here's what the mullah would say about this law, mm. et cetera, right? So she basically figures out how to reframe um, mm. the information that's inside the head and then back away slowly so that the decision isn't her telling them what to do, but their decision about how they, they want to do anything different based on this new information she's essentially introduced. And slowly but surely, uh, the village tribal leaders change. They learn that this is, uh, that there are many other options, that this is not um, good according to Sharia law, mm. uh, a series of other things that basically causes them to change. And it turns out the big insight that she learned was that when this tradition was first practiced, the reason that the girls were used was because at the time, most of the young men were dying. So basically you could imagine within a generation no longer having these, these villages. And so the, the leadership at the time basically looked around and said, what do we have that we could use? And they had basically more girls than they could feed Mm. And all the men were dying. And so, you know, natural economics is like, well, why don't we solve this problem this way? And back then, the girl used to go to the other person's house with sweets and a chadra and be given back, basically given back the respect and sent back to the home saying all is forgiven. Right. And, uh, and so she finds the old historical understanding of how it was done as a way of saying, you know, this was never meant to be about 
a young girl's life being destroyed. And then she would show these videos of young girls basically being treated as sex slaves and so on, right? And uh, anyway, it creates this, this real change of heart, uh, not because she told them anything new, but because mm-hmm. she created the right context for someone to have a new thought. And, and what, what fascinates me about that story and like, you know, almost haunts me is that part of what she, the only, the only way she was really able to do that and to, and to set that context was to kind of look past what I would think, like if I was sort of like presented with this practice, um, is something called the fundamental attribution error, which is basically to say, if I see someone do something terrible, right, my immediate yes. reaction is to attribute it to something, a character flaw. There's something wrong with them. Right. Right. They're broken. It's, yeah, exactly. It's the, the bias is basically you're, I'm okay. You're terrible. So <laughs> Um, if it's like running a red light, I'll assume you did it because, uh, if you run the red light, I assume it's because you're a scofflaw and you don't know what you're doing and you're an incompetent driver and whatever. If I run a red light, oh, I was in a rush, right? I had to get to the hospital. I was late for work. I attribute it to external factors. And what she was somehow able to do was to look at this terrible practice and the people who were engaged in it and somehow suspend, I mean, I'm sure it made her angry, but in order to actually do the tasks she did, she had to somehow suspend that attribution error long enough to say, okay, what are the external factors that have led to this? What is the context that would lead someone to think this was a reasonable thing to do? And only by being able to basically suspend that bias for a moment, was she able to uncover this evidence? One of the things I remember reading was that some of these fathers when were heartbroken, right? They were yes. torn yes. apart by giving their daughters away. When I first heard about the practice, I pictured this salacious, terrible father just gladly giving their daughter away, but that was not necessarily the case, right? Um, right. So it's and, that- and in fact, I have to tell you that Samar's story kind of blew my mind, and I kept looking at her like, tell me where the bullshit is the story, right? Like, what is the thing I'm not understanding? And she, she really did go through this process of herself having to go, okay, anger's not going to get me here, mm. right? And and I remembered my husband says this to me on a regular basis, but I can never hear it. So I, I will say this, that every time he says it to me, I will have this moment of being like, you are so bullshitting me. And yet I actually know it's true because I can say it, see it to other people. I'll say um, everyone's doing the best they can mm. with the information they have. Yeah. And my husband will say this to me saying, you are doing the best you can with everything you know how to do. And he goes, can you forgive yourself for not getting it right today or whatever? And I will look at him with like venom in my eyes. <laughs> I really will. I will get so yeah, upset. And, yeah. and, and, and if he if you listen to this podcast, he'd be giggling his because he knows he says this to me, and he sees me just look at him like, "You are a fucking asshole." Like I, I definitely <laughs> give him that look, right? Uh-huh. Because I'm like, no, no, no. That means I'm stupid. I haven't done like I am so hard on myself. And yet mm-hmm. with other people, I can actually sit there and go, "They're actually doing the absolute best." You can look at them. Look at them. They're doing their absolute best you can tell and yet something's missing so how do we help them like understand the missing piece right and um and, and i find it really amusing because when samar and i find you know my personal story kind of amazing that i can do this because then i'm listening to samar going how the hell did you do this and i could hear her saying what my husband's always saying and what i can see about other people she actually worked it took her three years by the way to be fair Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought that was really important for me to try to capture. It was not an immediate reaction on yeah. her part, but she had to sit there and think, okay, anger's not going to get me here. So if I'm going to affect this change, 
which is what most of us need to be able to really do, right? We don't actually just want to get mad about Me Too. Mm-hmm. What we want to do is get it so that sexual harassment stops. Yeah. We don't want to just be mad that there's racism in the world. What we want to do is get it so that people understand that they hold these beliefs about other people as being inferior. They don't even understand at times that they make choices from that place. Mm-hmm. So how could I possibly help them understand a broader frame? Yeah. And it's, I mean, and then I'm glad you brought up me too, right? Because that, that's why it was so hard for me to understand how she could, you know, relate to or not just simply dismiss, right? Be totally dismissive of the people who are doing this practice. When I hear these, these Me Too stories, my immediate reaction is to be completely angry. <laughs> like, and mm. that, that's it. I'm done. Like, I'm done with that, but that person, I am like, there's a, um, a zero risk bias episode. I did, um, it was uh, at the end of last season, where I was talking about how, and this may be part of the the reason that we do this, and in this case it was talking about um, Joss Whedon's, uh, accusations that Joss Whedon had cheated on his wife for a very, very long time. And like, that's not even like a sexual harassment thing, like, so even something considered less minor an offense, this conflict I had around being a huge Joss Whedon fan and yet trying to reconcile, and especially given that he's positioned himself very much as a feminist, like, how do I resolve this? And, like, zero-risk bias is basically saying, I don't want any kind of cognitive dissonance. I am going to either completely defend him and say, no, I still believe in everything he does and, like, blame the victim and say, no, like, which is one ugly kind of politics, or I'm going to burn every Buffy DVD I own, right? Like... (laughs) Yes. Either it's either, you know, feast or famine, right? And but that's the zero risk bias, which is basically our mind's way of saying, I don't want to have to think about this. <laughs> I want to have a decision, right. one decision on Joss Whedon and we're done. Like one decision on, you know, this. Oh, I have I have of... the same problem. Yeah, yeah, I have the same problem with Trump voters. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, because I'm just like I, I literally get horrified by things that happen in the news. And I actually come to mind with different people in my universe who chose not to vote. Mm. Um, the way I would have preferred for us to get not to this outcome, right? So, um, and I will have their full faces come to mind and I have to sit there and go, you cannot be mad at them. Like, you cannot be mad at this completely, like, you know, this essentially random person because today that person did not kill DACA. Like, that person is not responsible. And yet I really do, I do this full thing of like, because 53% of white women voted for that Mm -hmm. guy. Like, I go through the whole logic and I actually hold friends right in my mind of like yeah these people i'm gonna find them in a dark alley um and i recognize that that's happening and that's good right just to kind of recognize it and go okay yes and yet i also right hold some belief systems in my heart Mm -hmm. that are similar to how those people held their belief system which are similar to the people so so what is it that unites us yeah you know, and so I, this, in fact, uh, I reveal in the book, although I think my editor kind of made it sound better than I wanted it to, I reveal in the book that I actually really never understood racism mm. and, um, and never actually wanted to, like, mm. whatever, you know, like it affects someone else or whatever. Like I sure. just never really <laughs> went there. And then in the course of the last few years really did go there. And I, I, now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it, which I kind of wish at some level hadn't happened Sure. Um, because it, it makes for a really painful daily experience to, to witness the world through that lens and to see people's commentary around stuff. And you're like, do you not see that what you just said, you know, so you, anyway, yeah. it changes your whole worldview, but I actually didn't, didn't process it that way for a long time. And so the reason I, I write the story of black lives matter, mm. I write it with this, 
um, revealing curiosity, I think, is because I basically say that when, um, I'm trying to think of the kid's name, Trayvon was murdered, I happened to be at a conference um, where it was, in fact, around the African-American community, Hank Williams had asked me to come participate in an um, in a conference about how do we open up the innovation economy to uh, the black uh, community mm-hmm. of entrepreneurs and innovators. And so here I was speaking. I got on a plane. The Trayvon Martin um, incident was being like reported. And I actually had this full thought of how could I know if that's racism or not racism? Mm. How could I know? Maybe he was threatening. Maybe, you know, and I had these full like um, set of thoughts about how could I possibly know and I remember because it was one of those like really clear like moments where I was like, I don't think I'm allowed to have an opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm texting with my son who's brown, of course, or at least half brown, and saying I'm relating to it as a parent would a child. Isn't that sad mm-hmm. that this poor child did not come home to his parents that night? That's really sad. But then as I started just watching more and more, it was like one of those moments where you're like, huh, is this racism? You know, and so you can hear, you mm-hmm. can, it, it, almost like these little clicks kind of go off in my head, like, could this be, you know, and then could that really be? And then you sort of end up down a rabbit hole of understanding the situation more and more fully. And all of a sudden you're like, this little light bulb goes on. Yeah. And then once that little light bulb goes on, you can't not see it. And oh, it's, yeah. And, and I've said to friends, though, I don't like being woke now. <laughs> I'm sort of ashamed that well, I wasn't it's... woke before. And now yeah. I'm ter- like, I hate being woke because it's actually like this really painful experience. But yeah. the reason I wrote the BLM story in the book was because I basically had come to understand it as it was unfolding in front of my eyes. And I thought that was a fair lens to then offer to the rest of the world of none of us understand anything, right? So how do we get other people to understand our point of view if they don't have the lived experience? That was the ended up being the lesson of that story. Yeah. And I, and I think that comes right back to almost the DJ thing, right? So this notion of valuing different perspectives, right? You know, as much as we value our own and understanding that there are experiences that we have not had and because we have not had them or because the culture has not treated us the way that other people have been treated, right? Like, to your point, it's like, I don't get to have an opinion here, right? It's like, I don't have the, 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 um, the authority, the experience to understand, to view that incident the way someone else might, who's had a completely different experience and immediately jumps to, of course it was racism, right? Like, like there's, there's like, you know, and that, and that, and that you can almost describe that as the process of becoming woke is the process of valuing that, version of onlyness, right? That there's, you know, something yes. out there that we just simply don't understand and kind of having the humility to say, you know what, I'm going to own that I don't understand this and be open to understanding it. And to your point, yeah, it, it, it kind of sucks to be woke. <laughs> not as much, <laughs> not, not as much as it sucks to be person who has, you know, be, has to be awoken too, but, <laughs> but I totally, I totally get that. And, you know, from my perspective, you know, knowing my wife, as long as I have, I've come to understand with greater and greater, you know, capacity, how little I know about what it is, what it truly means to be a woman in the society. Right. Like, and there's that version of woke that I had, you know, um, had to come to as well. Um, 
with with Black Lives Matter, though, like one thing I find really interesting about the way you bring it up in the book is you kind of contrast it with with the Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. And the reason I really value that and some other things that you do in the book is there's a whole other bias that books like like yours sometimes fall prey to. And it's called the survivorship bias. And basically, um, the, the, the story behind it is that uh, in World War II, planes were getting shot down and they had these mathematicians come in and look at the planes, the wreckage they found and say, okay, look like when they come back, you know, come back, like what, you know, where should we put more armor? And the typical answer would be, well, look where all the bullet holes are, put more armor there. But this one mathematician said, wait, you're only showing me the planes that came back. I want to know where the planes that got shot down and didn't come back, where did they get shot? Must be all the places there aren't bullet holes. That's where you need to put the armor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's the same thing happens with sort of like success books, right? People will write about all these success stories and people will think, oh, great, I can be successful, but they're only talking about the survivors, right? They're only talking about right. not the 50 other people who tried the same damn thing and it didn't work. So what you do really well, I think, in this book is to sort of say, okay, here are some people who tried some things, but here's some people who are trying things in a kind of similar way and it didn't quite work. What's going on there? You kind of compare, contrast and there's more value almost in understanding like the failures or the not quite as yeah. successful. I called it the what not to do. You yeah, know, um, right. A, a good friend of mine is Stacy London, and uh, and I loved her show long before I met her. The what not to do because you know if you if, I don't know if you ever watched that show, but it was this ridiculous show of somebody showing up in someone's closet. Mm-hmm. And trying on all the clothes. And after a little while, you're like, yeah, you should not wear stripes. And yeah. you should not wear Hawaiian shirts. No one should wear Hawaiian shirts outside of Hawaii, you know. And, and right. just cer- certain patterns you pick up. And so I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do a what not to do story so you could see the why the other stuff works, right? You just can mm-hmm. see the pattern. And um, so, yeah, I did choose some. That was actually really uh, editorially an interesting decision, too, because what I was trying to do was also a triptych of a exemplar A, and then a what not to do, and exemplar B. And I thought people would see the story of exemplar B more clearly as to what the lesson was we were trying to draw, Mm -hmm. if I could show you the comparison in the middle. And I'm trying to almost space them far apart so that your brain will fill in the rest. Yeah, yeah, that's a a good technique. Because there's this magical thing, right, that happens in our own brains. Uh, if If you let people actually have their own space to draw their own conclusions, you don't need to tell them. They yeah. actually will fill it in. And, uh, and I was really trying to honor the intelligence of the reader. Of, um, if I show you what I saw in Exemplar A and then what, you know, so I left some room, right? And uh, it was an editorial decision because the editor was like, I don't know, I kind of want you to spell it out more. I'm like, I don't know. I, I think there's something that will just get filled in. I don't need to give them like a little check sheet at the end, but we'll see. We'll see if that's, a, that was an interesting um, choice that I lobbied pretty hard for. Yeah. No, that's. I think it's. I think it's a wise choice. Um, as we start to, to to come to the end of the hour here, one other thing I want to do, which I realize I probably should have done a while ago, is full disclosure. I appear briefly in Nilofer's book. Um, there's a chapter where she talks about Indie Hall, which is a co-working community that I belong to, and I have a, have a couple of quotes in there in that. But I kind of want to talk a little bit about community and kind of why you chose to write about Indie Hall and write about that aspect of community when it comes to onlyness, which you know intuitive you might think well it's just about one person why would it be what what could it possibly have to do with the community yeah so i think that's actually the if i if i am upset at all at the book it is that we did not explain see the default for everyone in their head when they hear onlyness mm-hmm. is it means more of me right and actually it's very definition 
is that people can now, in connectedness, have an opportunity to scale an idea born of only. So mm. it's the two parts put together make the whole. And without the connectedness, it doesn't stink and matter. And I mean right. that with great love and respect, right? It doesn't matter. Originality has existed for thousands of years across all the generations of people. That is not the problem. The, pr the opportunity today is that we can now actually make a real difference because we can now scale that. So if I just use the Me Too example uh, that we're currently living with today, uh, for, for a long, long time, women have you know, experienced um, sexual harassment. And then it's even been illegal for the last like 50 some years and, uh, and you know, well understood. It's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And yet continues to happen. And then uh, now all of a sudden you can go, you too? Oh, me too. And all of a sudden a whole bunch of stories come out that prove beyond an, a personal experience the opportunity for scale to happen, right? So yeah. that's, the, that's the reason why community matters so much, that you're no longer organized by the school you went to or the education level you have or the city you live in by, but instead by what you care about. And Andrew Solomon actually provided the perfect language around it. He said, there's the identity that we've been born into, and he defined that as vertical identity. Mm -hmm. And then there's this identity that we belong to that is horizontal. It cuts yeah. across people, it cuts across ages, and now all of a sudden we have this ability to actually grow our horizontal community, right? That, that thing that we care about. And that's the way in which we can now affect change. So community is central. It's first person plural, yeah. not first person singular. That is the opportunity here. Um, well, Nilfer, I want to thank you very much uh, for talking to me today. Um, I always enjoy our conversations. And uh, again, I, I can't recommend uh, your book enough. I really found it fascinating. And it resonates, like I said, with a lot of things I really care about right now, a lot of things that we talk about on this podcast, because inevitably we come to a conclusion where it's like, here's this bias and it's so unconscious, you really aren't going to be able to do much about it. Good luck. Like, I think your book kind of gives hope around like this notion of there are things there are things that are about ourselves that are unique that uh, that can scale, right? If we can kind of make the right choices around them. So, so thank you very yeah. much for sharing that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, um, that is all for the cognitive bias this week. Um, I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas, and we will see you next time.